You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is mr david rogers hello and making his first appearance in the booth is mr mark begley i am honored to be here today on this special episode of the projection booth we are looking at the 2019 film from director ochim bayram the antenna the film stars isan onal as Menet, a overseer at an apartment building in Turkey. We begin the film on the day when a new satellite dish is being installed that is part of a new era for the country, where the government can now broadcast directly to its citizens' televisions. Let's just say that this isn't the utopia that was promised. By the way, I want to apologize if we abuse any of the pronunciation of names in this episode. I think this might be the first Turkish film that we've covered, so we are definitely trying our best. And we will be spoiling this film, so if you don't want the antenna ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you've had a chance to see it. We will definitely still be here. So, David, what did you think of the antenna? It certainly has a lot going on in its mind. Um, it has a lot of ideas. Um, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle on this. Um, this could have been a really great short or, you know, Black Mirror or Twilight Zone episode. I don't know if this needed to be two hours. You know, having said that, there are some interesting ideas that I'm sure we'll all get into. How about you, Mark? This hits kind of a particular niche that I enjoy that isolated, uh, well, the apartment, although it's much different than, say, the apartment trilogy from Polanski, but that feeling of 
uh, not being able to trust your neighbors and uh, being stacked on top of each other is kind of a, a sub sub genre of horror that I enjoy. And I also enjoyed a lot of the either intentional or unintentional nods that I felt um, from a lot of other films. And so it was fun kind of seeing those things throughout. I don't think it was so much, you know, ripping things off, but you could definitely see a lot of the inspiration for the director. I do have to agree that I think it's probably a good 20 minutes over long, but um, I watched it three times and enjoyed it all three times. I also watched this three times, and I agree with both of you. It does feel a little long in the tooth. It's very atmospheric. I really like the way that it's shot. There's a lot of these shallow focus shots. I mean, right from the beginning, when we have our main character sitting in his little booth and he's getting, you know, ripped into by his boss before that and he's there and he's in focus. And then we see in the background this body fall from the top of the apartment building and it's the guy who is installing the satellite. And that's nice that that's all out of focus. You know, it's nice to be able to hide probably what was a dummy falling but at the same time there are a lot of times where it's just this really shallow plane of focus with things out of focus which makes it more i guess more immediate and really keeps our eye on our main character a lot of times i also like the color palette i like the rhythm of the editing there are many times where it's just a few patterns there's a lot of dripping water in this film but yeah, I agree that it is a little long and maybe it could hurry up a little bit because it's like stuff doesn't really start to happen, happen until like halfway through the two hour running time. And it's like, yeah, maybe if we just had an extra act after that rather than another half a second act and then the third act, it's just like, no, 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 let's get to the third act a little quicker, please. This is a very well put together movie. The director... um you know, I didn't get a chance really to look into him, but I would not be surprised if he comes from the commercial world because it's, it's very well polished. It's a very good looking movie. Um, and he, and you know, you, the atmosphere, as you said, is really there as well. Um, you know, some of the sound design particularly, um, really struck me with this one. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that, uh, shallow focus, particularly in scenes with uh, close up of faces. And it made me kind of understand what was happening to the characters. We have uh, later on when things start to to happen to people because of this antenna, the father that's eating the steak, we get the idea through that, that shallow focus that something is happening to his hearing, which I kind of missed the first time I watched it. I didn't understand that that's what was going on. And I think later we have the same kind of, focus with eyes and so everything else in the face is is out of focus if you just turn a little bit you know everything's going to be out of focus and then with the with the long shots maybe it was the same father figure is in the background and it already looks like and i'm kind of jumping ahead here but it already looks like he has that uh, blank face that we we end up seeing later on in the movie and if it was a deeper focus or uh, all one, you know, one focal point, then that would have been, wouldn't have been um, as hidden as it is. The shallow focus as well, I mean, kind of leaves more to the imagination. I mean, we could, all three of us list dozens and dozens of movies where you've seen a shot of somebody falling and splattering. 
this was more impactful. Like, you know, like I just, I kind of jolted myself. You know what's happening, but it just, it did feel more impactful. It leaves a little more theater to the mind, even though you kind of sort of see it. I like to, that with this being an apartment movie, we're going to get a handful of characters. Luckily, they don't try to show us like hundreds and hundreds of characters. We just have pretty much like, I don't know, maybe what, like five or six families that we're kind of following through here. And it's taken me a while. Like the first time I watched this, I kept confusing two of the families. And so I wasn't sure, is there a a mom, dad, and a son and a daughter? Oh no, the son is with this family. The daughter's with this family. And I really thought that they were all kind of the same thing. They balance out who we're going to see and what's going on with their lives a little, though they keep us at arm's length a lot of times. We really only follow our main character and this woman named Yasmin. Then the other characters just kind of fade off into the distance, I guess, kind of speaking to that shallow focus again. We don't really get to be engaged that as much with these other people. Yeah, I think that was one of my big problems with it. Some of the characters get dropped and then reemerge towards the finale. The the woman who has the accident in the bathtub comes to mind after that happens, and we can talk about that scene. But then you don't see her for a very long time, and I kind of forgot about her until Mehmet discovers her again. And the same with the families, and I think part of that is that the two dads look very similar they're both uh, r- roughly the same age and both balding, and I got confused as to which husband belonged to which which family. It was easier on the third viewing, of course, but the first two times, I was like, okay, wait, is this all one family group or are these different families? And the cross-cutting wasn't as distinct, maybe, as it, it could have been between what's happening between these two families. The fathers look very similar. On top of it, the two children have a name with a U, excuse me, a Y. So I think it's Yusef and then Yasmin. So that, you know, if the two parents are talking amongst one another, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of the, you know, you have to decipher which, which, uh, family is which based on the child's name. But of course, you know, if you're own, you know, if you don't quite catch the name right away, you get to catch the Y, you know, so kind of gave me a similar feeling when I watched infernal fairs years ago which the two main characters look similar and had if you were watching it subtitled the names read very similar as well and and i think the other problem that we're kind of talking about is you know for me i didn't feel any impact of any any fates of the characters because i don't really feel like you know they really did you know they're not all fleshed out characters I'm, i'm sorry to say um or there's not a lot of meat on the bones so you know if something happens to a character i can't necessarily say that it really impacted me. So we have that initial death of the man who falls off the building. And then it's very quickly thereafter that one of the tenants comes and complains to Mehmet and says, Hey, I've got some black stuff on my shower wall. And I'm just like, Oh wow. Okay. Like we've only had like maybe two scenes in between then. I was like, all right, great. So this is really starting off quickly. Like this black stuff is coming in and we are already seeing the satellite dish at work, you know, how quickly this is going. And then we get away from it for a while. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, so I thought like, okay, yeah, wow. The pace of this movie is going to be really fast. And then no, it turns into a slow burn after that. And I'm just like, Man, you tricked me. I really thought that we were going to get into this a lot faster than we did. It did seem like that showed up. If I'm remembering it correctly now, 
she walks out of the apartment shortly after uh, the antenna installer has fallen and been taken away and is already complaining about the black ooze. And I think in your notes, Mike, you even said, you know, was it already there? Is this, is this something that was already going on? And that time frame makes it very hard to, to tell when Mehmet goes up to, to check the antenna to move it. It's dripping out of the antenna and it's also on the, the roof of the building. So I, you know, I don't know if that was just more of a mistake and not an editing, but just in, you know, how fast is this, is this thing going? And then you're right. We kind of lose track of the ooze off and on throughout the film. When that woman goes into the tub, David, you mentioned the sound, I think, earlier, as far as the way that the father like is kind of losing the sound. I really like that kind of subjective soundscape of the woman when she's in the water, everything becomes muffled. And when she comes out, we can hear things clearer. That really is a nice effect because it's always a little scary when you go underwater and you suddenly are just like enveloped in, in like a weird murky silence. And I like that we are hearing that from her. We're not getting necessarily POV shots of her, but we're getting her POV of her audio. First time I watched this, I can't recall. I mean, I imagine there is, but I can't uh, recall a movie that does that, you know, that sound effect because it's very distinct. I mean, we all as bath time as kids, I remember just distinctly, you know, going under the water with that sounds like and up above. And I, I just haven't seen movies play with that that I can think of. And, you know, that was kind of a nice touch. These days, for whatever reason, when there's an explosion, you get that high-pitched noise in our protagonist's ear, or like even in something like Copland, when he can't hear anything after a while. I really like that, when, especially at the end with Harvey Keitel, when he's like, I can't hear you, Ray, or whatever he says. It's just like, ooh, that's really nice. Like It has kind of multiple meanings. But yeah, as far as that real subjective sound of going under and up above water, I can't really think of anything. And then we kind of get that again with Mehmet in the in his little booth and you you mentioned this at the beginning that uh, goes along with the editing where he starts to hear every individual sound in his office there uh, kind of go in and out with each other it starts with the dripping water and then the ticking clock and then they kind of layer on top and it's all uh, the way he's hearing things, even the little radiator that he has in there has a distinct sound and they just get louder and louder. And um, the sound design was was very interesting uh, at the beginning of the movie when he is walking to work. I got a I got a little uh, eraser head flavor there with the kind of rundown landscape. And he even walks in front of a uh an apartment row and there's all the windows kind of like that very, one of the very first shots of eraser head. And then with that, it's not as loud, but that distinct kind of industrial noise going on in the background. I'm interested to hear anytime you, you see a visual reference or a, to another movie, cause I, I didn't catch any. So I'm really interested to hear some more of those. I read a review before I started watching and the two names that were tossed out in the review were David Lynch and David Cronenberg. So I, uh, my, my ears were perked up by that. So anything that I could, I could draw in that regard, I kind of uh, picked out on. And at, at, as far as the rest of the movie, that's about the only kind of David Lynchian thing I picked out. I think that might've been the same Hollywood reporter article or review that I read 
it's not subtle, the metaphor that we're going for here, as far as installing this antenna and the way that this goo infects the apartment building and the way that everyone is always in front of their television set. I mean, it is very, very obvious that we are going for a discussion of state control and censorship and media control and just like what kind of message gets to people and just the way that this black goo seems to be seeping through from that satellite and pretty much murdering or making people into murderous individuals you know it's like that that picture of the uh the couple that we saw a couple weeks ago with the uh assault rifle and the handgun and it's like this is our parents were afraid of what video games would do to us and now we're afraid of what fox news does to them you know this is kind of like okay the black goo getting into these people's house and they come out with an ar-15 and and a handgun it's it's as subtle as that Maybe a touch more subtle than that, because that we only have um, knives and and scissors as our weapons. But um, I guess probably there aren't a, a, as many guns in the hands of citizens in Turkey. So not everybody can be as great as the United States. Come on, there you go again. I do like too that this is all coming from this satellite dish on top of the building because then you get these really nice almost pov shots from the satellite like all of these shots down at memet as he's walking across the courtyard or whatever out in front of the building so it's really nice that he is just this kind of like god's eye view of him just being so small and so ineffectual and he is trying to uncover what's going on and at some point in the film he almost seems to go into some place that doesn't even seem to exist in the building it's almost like he's going into another dimension and seeing this um kind of reminded me of that scene in the matrix when he goes and sees the uh the architect with all those tvs and that's the the image that they use for the poster is all of those tvs with like the eyes looking at him and just all of the stuff that he can see through this and it's again it's that metaphor of the government control and what they can see it's almost like the tv works in two directions yeah, I'm glad you said that. I, I that kept bugging me. I'm like, is, what am I? What movie am I thinking of this from? And I, I, Matrix was one of the ones I thought of, but you just kind of confirmed that for me. That was the sequel, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was either two or three. They all just bleed together after the first one. I'm gonna have to say two because I never saw three because I hated two so bad. <laughs> I can't blame you whatsoever. I was a little confused by that part where he enters the room with the dishes and the the satellite dishes and the TVs because I could couldn't remember what he had been doing prior to that to kind of place that in either the apartment. Um, we had a dream sequence with him earlier. So was it, uh, it doesn't seem like it's a dream again, but I didn't know where that was supposed to be taking place. I, I was a bit confused by that too. And speaking of that earlier dream sequence, that kind of, <laughs> I kind of almost wish that scene was cut out because it made me wish for a much more interesting movie in which it turned into Tetsuo the Iron Man all of a sudden. Yeah, that brought to mind Videodrome for me and and another movie that we'll we'll talk about later when we talk about um you know the the things that this reminds us of, but um yeah, I I was a little disappointed it was a dream sequence as well because that was interesting if that had been happening to all of the tenants in the building. Yeah, it was very confusing as far as who's getting affected when and how. And then they introduce this idea you mentioned before, David, the um, 
kind of the faceless thing. It kind of reminded me of like the kids from the uh, another brick in the wall sequence from the wall where they have like those almost like meat faces. It's like, okay, well, how is this like the next step in the evolution? Is this what happens when the goo gets into you? Do you turn into this kind of faceless zombie? I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense, but it just seemed kind of random when they would show up or not show up. Yeah, I actually had that in my notes. I put uh, faceless tenants equals creepy equals the wall. So I was happy to see that in yours as well. It looked like the wall, and I've seen clips of it. I don't it, like one of the creatures from um, like Silent Hill or uh, Resident Evil. I'm some, I'm sure somebody will correct me on that, but <laughs> I think there's even something like that in Jacob's Ladder. One of the one of the creatures that uh, you know is violently shaking their heads either in the subway or at the party. I think is is uh, without features, but I I could be misremembering as well. I don't feel like I'm a stupid person, but, you know, like, I felt like I couldn't figure out the rules of everything. I mean, for some people, it affects them, you know, where they want to kill and others, it, one of the parents got electrocuted. It, it just, it didn't seem to have very defined rules as to what it does to everybody. One woman, it drowned. I, I mean, if that's your interpretation, um, I don't know if is it to kill or control because, you know, some people seem to get killed and others seem to get controlled by it. Um I had the same problem from the beginning, and that's sort of how the infected in Shivers plays out with people being uh, affected immediately. Some it takes a while. Uh, some it, it turns them into crazed maniacs. Some it's more subtle. And here I couldn't figure out, okay, are they just becoming murderers or are they becoming faceless zombies? Because we have both. And I don't think... Anybody that, and I could be wrong, that was faceless at some point in this or was a murderer at some point in this then ends up being one of the faceless zombies. But I guess it's kind of hard to tell if their face is gone. Yeah, because sometimes it'll come out of electrical outlets and then you'll step in the goo and get electrocuted. They don't really show how, at least I didn't see how it got into the one father's uh, food that he was eating. How is this getting into into everybody? I kind of wish that it had all just stuck to one thing and I wish it had maybe been more television focused that they had played into that a little bit more. I mean, it is weird that when they finally do the broadcast, I think it's at midnight and it's like, okay, well, who's awake at this point? Because otherwise everybody is always there like watching their TV. There's a shot of like a couple there watching their TV together. And then you see, and I think she might be the one who is putting up pictures earlier. And then it seems like it, the goo is dripping out of the holes that she made to hang the pictures. There are other moments where I'm just like, okay, this is really, again, not being very subtle with the metaphors. Like, there's a, a family and the father is unemployed. He's uh, talking about how he won't have to go to work in the morning. And the kid's like, oh, well, why do you, don't you have to go to work? And I'm like, oh, okay, he just lost his job. And he's building a house of cards with this kid. I was like, okay. And then there's another scene where there's a uh, a bird in a cage, and I'm just like, okay, that's the you just kinda, <laughs> yeah, you're feeding this to us, okay, yep, we're we're getting this, it's okay, but then they kind of lose the thread uh, sometimes, where it's just like, all right, I, if you're going to go with this metaphor, let's go ahead and just go all the way, let's let's do it up. I do have an answer about the how it drips into the meat. I caught it on the third watch. It's uh, from the bathtub 
because I thought, okay, who's going to turn this water off? That it, and that's just a thing of mine. Where when there's running bath water in a movie, it it drives me insane. It starts spilling out, and there's a little drain for I guess that eventuality. Then it kind of has a um, I don't know if the camera actually pans down like it's going through the building, but that stain appears on the ceiling over over their table when they're eating dinner, and then it drips on his his steak. It kind of drips in looking like A1 sauce. <laughs> Which is a good cover-up to why he continued to eat it when it turned black. Oh, put my steak sauce on there. Okay, thank you for bringing up the whole um, the bathtub thing, or like when people don't... I, I wanted to scream at my TV because she felt she had enough time to watch an entire instructional video before the, bath- <laughs> the <laughs> bathtub was going to be completely overflown. Um, but... Uh, she knows exactly how long it takes to fill her bathtub. Apparently. Has <laughs> it down to a science. I don't think that's the first time she's uh, done that whole beauty regimen with the almost like Botox. And then she puts the face mask on. And I mean, that was good at least because I know if you wear a face mask like that, you kind of have to tilt your head back. So I was like, okay, well, that makes sense as far as why she doesn't see that the water she's about to step in is pitch black. Yeah, that was a good catch. I, I caught that on the second watch. I was like, oh, okay, that makes a whole lot of sense because why would you not see that? But, that you know, that brings up her little scene there with that instructional video. Brings up a point that we had when we were uh, messaging each other and what what the time period is for this. And I think that was what made me think that this was like near future um, because I, I don't know – it doesn't say it's Botox. It's more for youthful skin, but that seems like a more modern kind of even sort of futuristic deal. Like, oh, we'll just ship this out and you can Botox your, your face yourself if you want. And um, But then again, everything in the movie is kind of archaic, very old-fashioned TVs and radios and stuff. So it, it sort of drops you in that timeless area of, of movie land, I guess. I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to stick in my head and say it's 80s, 90s era just because I, I, I can see where you're going where um, what's there's a term I've read somewhere where like um, the, the fedora hat future, which is, you know, something of something like adjustment bureau where they kind of have cla- – they try to mesh classic styles with modern technology for a future. Um, but I didn't, I didn't picture that here. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of another recent, uh, TV show, uh, that TV show Maniac that was on Netflix, um, kind of did that where they fused old technology with modern technology. But I just, I saw nothing here that clued me into anything modern or futuristic, even, you know, um, but that, that's just my interpretation, I guess, is where I'm just going to say, no, 80s, 90s, because <laughs> I, <just>, I wasn't <laughs> given anything to think otherwise. Um, Since I read a couple of reviews before watching the movie and hearing or reading the word dystopia puts me in that frame of mind. So I just had that that thought while I was watching it the first time. And, I, you know, I'm not saying I'm right either, because there, there's no other defining things in there that give you a sense of when this is, I don't even think we see a car at all. The only thing it made me think of was how in uh, It Follows, there's a couple movies that do this. It Follows and The Love Witch kind of play with uh, when does this take place? And they'll throw in a modern contrivance in there to, to let you know that, well, this is taking place sometime around now, even though everything looks 
old um, in the Love Witch. I mean, that's very much uh, it's supposed to look like a 60s Technicolor film, but they're using computers and laptops and, and cell phones and things like that. And with It Follows, you never quite know what season it is, what year it is, anything like that. And the only indication is that that one girl's little um, ebook reader. And so it has to take place sometime around now when those were invented. So, Although you mentioned that e-reader, although I got to say the first time I saw it, I thought it was a um, pregnancy pill pack or <laughs> the pill because it looks very much like that compact if you've ever seen those. Um, but yeah, that's actually a modern thing. And um, and I, it's not so much the movie's fault as in modern technology like that. But I just watched a movie recently, a, a new movie this year called Blow the Man Down on Amazon and everything about it. Like it was very drab and I'm keep looking for technology because nothing clued me. I'm like, okay, is this today? Is this the eighties? You know? And if finally somebody mentioned, Oh, uh, you sent me a text. I'm like, okay, so I guess it is modern, but that's, that's a modern thing that's really bugging me is when you can't figure out right away what era you're in. <laughs> if we suddenly added cell phones to this movie, I don't know what good cell phones would do in this case because it's not like they're going to call anybody for help you know that's always the thing in modern horror movies is how do we get rid of the cell phones because people could just easily pick up and send for help so quickly oh no my there's no signal in this building what happened after they installed the satellite there's no signal anymore, <laughs> right or something like that but yeah they're just it's such an isolated world these people, even though they're all living next to each other, they all seem so isolated. It's not like anybody knows what's happening to anybody else. The only person that seems to know is Maymat, and then he just kind of wanders through the underworld after a while. He's almost like Orpheus trying to like figure things out and going into this weird parallel dimension. I wanted a little bit of interaction, and I don't know if I'm creating this in my head, but when the at the very beginning, when when bathtub lady, and I don't even know if she's named in the movie, and if she is, I, I'm totally not remembering it, it at all. But when she walks out, I don't know if I imagined an exchange which with whichever dad was out there. I think it's the the father and mother with the young boy. And I thought, oh, are we going to have, you know, some kind of uh, extramarital stuff going on? And then that kind of uh, never happened. And I would have liked a little more interaction with the families, maybe, or with even with them and Mehmet. Um, he really only interacts with the children. And, um, I mean, he's kind of an innocent as well, I guess. He's our, our, our every man in the story. But something to maybe draw those either tensions or uh, issues amongst the tenants and maybe some more tenants just, just to see some more tenants. Not that we have to follow, you know, 50 different stories. We could have had at least a few more dead meats or something. I really thought that this was going to be both Mehmet and Yasmin's story, this whole thing of him giving her a ticket to get out. And he talks about like, or she says like, they'll never, stop looking for me. And I was just like, well, who's the they? Is it the government? And then finally I'm like, okay, no, it's probably more her parents. And it seems like she's got this really abusive father. And I'm like, okay, so this is kind of going to be both of their stories. But then she just kind of fades into the background for a while. And yeah, we do get a good deal of her on screen, but I never feel again that connection to her. I'm not like, oh my God, yes, I mean, get out of there. You've got to get out of there. No, mm -hmm. I'm just like, okay, let's watch what happens to her. Oh, she's just about dead. Right. <laughs> you mentioned in your notes the conspiracy board that she has, and it's 
very briefly shown, and that would have been something that would have interested me. What is the conspiracy? Is it just this general idea that government is becoming totalitarian? But that, why would you need a conspiracy board for that? So that would have been an interesting thread to follow, but it's just kind of uh, shown in a, in a panning shot and then that's it. And then she plays with her kaleidoscope. And what is the kaleidoscope all about? There's pictures on her wall that also have those kind of kaleidoscopic images. Is that just escapism? I don't mind when, you know, someone that's trying to get out or, or that Mehmet's trying to help her and it doesn't happen. I kind of like down downer endings like that. But again, what what's what is her deal? What what's behind her needing to get out other than just being an unhappy teenager? The parents of Yasmin mentioned uh, about they made an arrangement with uh, Sihan, the building owner, or uh, Mehmet's boss. Did anybody take that as an arranged marriage or like a job he was getting? I, I couldn't quite figure out if it's an arranged marriage. I absolutely understand why she'd want to run away. Um, so. No, it was a it was a job. Uh, when Mehmet and her are talking, um, when they're seated at that wall, she mentions that her dad keeps trying to get her to work with him. Um, she she does say that he is a sick jerk, and then we have that little stare down in the elevator. So there's probably been some inappropriate things happening from him. But um, yeah, they want her to work for him. Okay, yeah, that, that flew over my head for some reason. Yeah, that boss is just not good. I mean, he's constantly on Maymat and just calling him stupid and, you know, like saying that he's falling asleep at work, though it sounds like Mimad is falling asleep because it sounds like he can't sleep otherwise. It just sounds like he's almost in that kind of narrator or fight club kind of world where he doesn't know if he's asleep or awake, which also lends a little bit to this, the nightmare that you talked about, and then just kind of the nightmare world that he's in at the end of the film. Well, and the boss is kind of that typical, uh, what does he say? You know, why do I have to take care of everything? And um, it's a little one note, and we get that. We we see that in, in every kind of movie like this with the, the haggard employee and the, uh, you know, you know, the, the mean boss, get in, get in, uh, take your clothes off and get in there when the boiler has exploded and there's all that water in the basement. And uh, of course it's the black water, but yeah. So some of those characters you've got, it's hard to tell with the wives, if they're the henpecked wife or, um, the abused wife, we don't really get much from, from them as characters at all. Other than I think Yusef's mom, you know, mentions that she she's willing to go back to work, and and so then we get the whole whole deal with the husband, you know, no, that's not going to happen. He can't be away from his mom, and with the the idea that a man's worth is tied to his work. So, uh, you know, this may be cultural things, but they're fairly universal, and and we still have a lot of that these days outlined family structure. And again, none of it really goes all that deep other than a really superficial kind of, this is, you know, that kind of family. And Yasmin's dad is shown as abusive. I mean, he is at the end, but he's also been infected. So. Right. It's not like the first time we see her, she's got a bruise on the side of her face or something. It's not like we see the abuse other than when he is affected and that he just seems like a little bit of a jerk, but you know, it's that old, uh, screenplay thing, you know, you tell, you don't show. 
or vice versa. At the very end of the film, uh, Mehmet is coming down a hallway and there are radios, it looks like, being on either side of the wall, just kind of stuck in the wall. Some of it, some of them coming out, some of them completely embedded in the wall. And yeah, all of those radios look like something that I would have had as a, you know, maybe like an early a preteen in the early 80s kind of thing. And they just did not look modern whatsoever. Yeah, they definitely look like um, all transistor radios and such, you know, old terrestrial radios. Yeah, because you don't see anything just as a radio anymore like that. I think it's also safer if you're going to set something in an unknown time, quote unquote, or if you're setting something 20, 30 years ago so that you can't necessarily be accused of critiquing today's government, that you can say, oh, no, 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 this obviously takes place in the early 80s. Look at the radios. Yeah, that was one of the the thoughts that I had after, because uh, reading just a very tiny little bit of, that I did about the government in Turkey right now. I thought, well, how would you get away with with this movie at this time? And so that does that really kind of uh, enforces that this is a a past. This is not where we're headed, but maybe where we've emerged from. Yeah, it sounds like things in Turkey are actually even worse than they are here as far as like shutting down media outlets and jailing journalists, you know, all the things that I think Trump would probably like to do. They're actually doing over there. Yeah, did you read that bit from the notes at the beginning? I can't remember now, but uh, I'm looking at it right now, and they've shut down a ton of media outlets and jailed journalists and things, and um, yeah, that's not good. 90% of Turkish newspapers now push the pro-government line. I mean, that is really super scary. They get into that at the end with all of the transmissions from the radios, and of course, if you can understand Turkish, you'd, you'd catch more of it. But with subtitles, it seems like they're only kind of hitting the major or the louder parts there. But, um, you know, I saw words like eradicated and neutralized and um, even so much as if, if citizens are spotted af- outside after midnight, they will be jailed. Uh, that's not the right word, but to some things to that effect. And it's really only through that mishmash of radio transmission that that comes out um it's not you know over the uh, i guess if you spoke turkish it might be more in your face but it's a little bit more subtle with uh, missing a lot of what's being said there yeah when he finds that room of the tvs that i was talking about earlier the one subtitle that i wrote down was power is our fate and it's like okay so basically it's they're they're destined to be in power and to make you know, everyone's lives kind of this living hell that Mehmet's in at the end. It is now time to act as a single body. We will be with you forever. Our voice is your voice. And that kind of brings up something you mentioned earlier, Mike. I think it was you. The the, the point of the midnight bulletin was bothering me the whole time. And I thought, and I think you said this already, Why? who's up at midnight watching? Why didn't they do it in the middle of the day? What was What was the point of that? The installation had already happened, so... I understand that today is the first day that the broadcast is going to happen, but if I understood correctly, not every single person already has the the satellite, or, excuse me, the antenna. So, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't it seem, uh, at, you know, uh, not to 
do it a little too early, you know, like maybe people who don't have the unit will catch on at that point. I don't know, uh, depending on how fast, you know, news travels at that time. Yeah, that struck me as odd, too, because they say the four million residences that already have it, uh, 10 million people, and we're, you know, it's we're going to continue. It's like, well, why don't you do the broadcast when it's in every home if it's affecting people this way? Or are these affected people going to go out and affect, uh, infect others, um, which we don't, we don't see any of that. So uh, yeah, it was a little strange to me as to why they're, they're kind of starting without, uh, completely installing everything. It makes for interesting visual, but really why goo? I mean, that seems like if you're going to take over those buildings after, if that's part of the plan, it's a lot of cleanup you're going to have to do after. I do have to say that the last shot of the film is absolutely chilling. I mean, I don't necessarily understand it. Like, I don't know if this... So, the the last shot is Maymap back in his kind of observation room with the apartment building across the way uh, where he was sitting when we first saw the body fall. And this time, he's sitting there and the lights come up outside, I think. And there's basically, it's like four of these faceless creatures there and it looks like a, a nuclear family of like a mom dad son and daughter and then the we fade to black immediately and then the credits roll and i was just like okay i'm not sure exactly what's going to happen to him it seems like this is the beginning of a zombie movie but i was still just like "Ooh, wow okay that's that's pretty harsh there whatever's going to happen next i'm actually getting goosebumps a little bit from that Remembering that scene, the uh, one prior to that that really gave me shivers when I watched it was when he comes out of the little office there. And again, using that shallow focus, you you see lights on in the back and you see possibly figures in windows. And then it either the camera either pulls back or it, it focuses in on that. And then I'm not sure how many stories that building was, but say 10 stories up. In every one of those windows, as the camera pans up, there is a figure in black there. And that's that's the kind of stuff that I love. And um, that shot really got me. That was one of the few kind of straight-on horror touches in the film. That's where it felt like it was going to turn into a paranormal ghost movie for half a moment. And, of course, you know, we find out. I, I imagine those are the faceless creatures. But the director certainly can, you know, um, set up a shot or, you know, set up a, se- set up a sequence. You know, I, I feel like I don't want to put words in your guys' mouth, but I, I think it's fair to say the general consensus is great effort, but not necessarily a great movie. But, you know, I will be interested to see what, what he goes on to do because, you know, he can set up a, a shot and, and paint a pretty picture, you know, paint an interesting picture. Yeah, and I think a lot of those, like Mike mentioned, the the kind of God's point of view shots were really nice. Uh, I enjoy walking down the hall shots for some reason, and there were a number of those in the film. And the composition was nice in, in many of the interior scenes, even just in that little office with Mehmet uh, facing you know the window. And we're seeing him shooting from the back out to the window and that desolate little landscape in there. Really nice setup, and I wouldn't be surprised either, like you said, David, if he had worked in commercials or some other kind of film before doing this feature. Well, hopefully we'll find out. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the writer and director of The Antenna, Ocham Bayram, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fuck simple eyeballs yep. out. 
because this pulls it on out. She was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There were some butts. Yep, pillins. Yep, butt. Yep, pillins. Butt. Yep, pillins. It's over 90% cheek. That's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for classy broads and a token dude talking horror. What if you owned your own drive-in? An open-air theater outside of time and space. You could show anything you want. You could pair together any movies you want. Regardless of genre. Regardless of when they were made. regardless of quality. If you could own such a theater, if you could do whatever you wanted, you certainly wouldn't do it like this. It's like if we don't use it, you'd be like wasting my precious f***ing fluids. <laughs> my precious creative juices. Oh my god, I had to, I had to read two sentences. <laughs> Over and over. Who is this guy think he is? Kubrick? Fincher? <laughs> Who's this f- guy? Are you ready for me to read this, Mr. Hitchcock? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the bird going to sh- on my shoulder in this scene, too? He's a plastic bird. He doesn't even make sh- on his own. <laughs> the All Night Drive-In Picture Show. Available now at a podcatcher near you. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Do something. Shoot it. Shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> That's about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Being known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. <laughs> what could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since they've been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. The future depends on it. Make it safe. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Did you grow up in Istanbul? 
Yes, I did. I uh, grew up in Istanbul till I was 17, and then I moved abroad. And I lived in Europe for a few years. Then I went to the United States to study film. And then I moved around a bit to Mexico and Thailand. So I was abroad for like 10 years, and then I got back to Turkey. Why film? What got you interested in making film? Well, that started a long, long time ago, actually. I was a huge horror movie fan from, uh, from childhood. Uh, we were like a little group, little pack of horror film watchers with my cousins. And we would watch anything that would come, you know. We would wait till late night to see whatever the horror movies are up at that night. And we would rent VHS films. So I think that's how I started to get interested in film. And the, the whole experience was important at the time because it was like the forbidden fruit, the horror films. In the sense that it was horror film, and I was a kid, so it was actually forbidden by my parents. But on top of it, it will they would broadcast that night, so I would also have to wait till late at night. And you know, the TV program wasn't clear at the time, so you would never know when it would come out. So I think it was my sense of adventure to watch horror films at the time. And were these all primarily foreign horror films, or were there local horror films as well? The local horror films, when I was a kid, there weren't that many. Uh, there was this remake of Exorcist uh, by Metin Erkson called Shaitan. That was often ran on TV, and there wasn't much censorship on TV at the time, so they would even run it during daytime. But apart from that, there are only like maybe six, seven horror films from Turkey before 2000. There are, there are very few examples because the special effects were not there. There wasn't much produced at the time. What happened in 2000 to change that? Well, a couple of things. One thing is the digital age. It became easier to make films, and it became easier to have effects as well. So you could do really low-budget horror films. And the second thing is that the producers found out that it's like a really easy way to make money to produce a lot of cheap horror films and there's always a target audience that would be going to the horror films. So tell me about your time in Chicago. What was that like for you and, and what was your primary study there? Well, I started off studying uh, cinematography there and then I switched to directing. I enjoyed it actually. It was a, it was a good school and I liked that there was this, in Turkey there wasn't any specialization in, in filmmaking. You would actually study just film. But in, I don't know if other schools are the same, but in, the, in Columbia College, you could specialize on whatever you want to specialize. I think that was like a huge plus. Also, you had more chances to use more different cameras and that was just more chance to use, you know, lighting equipment, editing equipment, all kinds of stuff. That was more access. So I enjoyed it in that regard. Also, you know, getting to know new cultures shapes your mind completely. You know, you start to see the world in a different way. What were some of the gigs that you got after you graduated? After the graduation, I didn't go into cinema directly. I traveled a bit. And then when I went back to Istanbul, I, I got into filmmaking again. So there was this period of three, four years where I lived in the tropic countries and did other stuff that I wasn't in cinema that much. But when I got back, I got into photography, actually. I was working as a photojournalist and as, as a translator as well. I was working with foreign press. I would travel to, you know, southeast of Turkey, near the Syrian border, have some work on some political news. 
And in the meantime, I started to do like documentaries and music videos and short films and so on as well. Bina has such an amazing look to it. And I was just curious as far as like, you must have put in so many hours to be able to get the skills to be able to make that look as fantastic as it does. Oh, thank you. That's, that's lovely to hear. Uh, I mean, it's the work of, of course, my cinematographer, Engineuskaya, as well. That's, he's the responsible of the cinematographic aspect of it. But yeah, I think I, my mind works in more towards cinematographic, uh, cinematography in filmmaking as well. I, I studied cinematography in Columbia College. Then I was in Pafamu in Prague. I also studied cinematography there. So the image uh, and the visual is, is quite important for me. That's, that's how I start thinking about a film. There are just images in the beginning, and then I start to shape the story. What were those images that helped bring the antenna to life? One image was, I think the whole thing, the antenna started with this image of there are ciliates on the windows, in the windows that, that everyone is looking at the, at the guards. And that was the first image that I had in mind because it reminded me that the windows and the relationship between the windows and the television screen uh, seemed quite poetically aligned for me. And then I thought of it as a horror thing, like that you are being watched through the windows. That idea came with that, actually. That was the first image. The idea comes from somewhere else, but the, the spark of the image was, was that. Tell me about the making of the film. How was it doing your first feature film? It was really hell. It was very difficult, I have to say. You know, some people say that I, I loved making this film. I enjoyed it. And I would say the contrary. The whole thing was really difficult. There was all kinds of uh, roadblocks and problems that, that we faced. I mean, one issue was always, of course, the money. It's like a really low-budget film. But it's a very ambitious, ambitious film as well. Like we are recreating entire scenes. There are a lot of dream sequences. Uh, there are very surreal scenes and stages as well. So it was very demanding. What we did is that we actually shot the entire film uh, in an abandoned post office. We rented it for like one thousand dollars. It was about to be de- demolished, so they just gave it as us. They gave it to us for one month, and we rebuilt. We built everything in there. We were carrying our, you know, own all own furniture uh, as props. We were finding stuff from junkyards. Most of the dream sequences that you see are stuff from junkyards around a little town in in Turkey. So that whole aspect of lacking many things made it very difficult. It was working over hours. There was no heating system. We were shooting in at night in winter, so it was it was freezing all the time. Uh, so it was difficult, but I don't know. At this point, like when I look at it, it's a good memory, maybe. But yeah, <laughs> if I if I make another film, I will I will use another pet. Tell me about the gentleman that plays Maymat, because I know you must have had a really good relationship with him because he was in so many uh, scenes. He's in seventy percent of the movie, at least. Pretty much. I mean, he's the he's the lead role in a way. It's an episodic film, so it's hard to define an actual lead role, but he is the one that gathers all the stories together. 
He's actually a friend of a friend of mine. With him, it was sort of like a love at first sight. I think physically he seemed perfect for the role that I had in mind. You know, when I was writing the story, it's just this image. You create this non-existent person in your mind and uh, you make them act. And then when I met him, he fit immediately to this, to this role visually. And then we started working on the script a bit and did a little audition. And yeah, it was like a decision made in like 48 hours and we were working together. And yeah, I was very happy with this performance. How long did it take the actual shoot? How long was that? About three and a half weeks. Mostly at night. We had like one week in Istanbul and two and a half weeks in Balıkesir, uh, which is a small town in Turkey with various post offices. So tell me a little bit about the pre-production as far as uh, getting all of the right people on your staff and then getting all those actors as well. Half of the crew was my, were my friends already that I already knew, knew them. So that was easy. And, you know, in, in Turkey, I think maybe most of uh, in most places around the world, when you're about to make your first film, a lot of people try to help you out. Like it's like a solidarity thing. So there was this help that I was receiving from friends. And the other part of the crew I found through a producer. I was also the main producer of the project, but there was a line producer that was helping me out. Basically, that was half of my friends and half some professionals from the field. And the actors couple of them I knew beforehand, but mostly it was through auditions. What was the actual goo that you were using through so much of it? Black dye and mixed with water. And I don't know how you call it in English. It's the thing that you make to, it's edible, like a jello, like a candy, that material. So if you, depending on how much you put in it, it decides how dense it will get. So if I wanted to make it very, very dense, I would put a lot of it. And sometimes it's more liquidy. So, yeah, that's that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. There are three components. Did anybody uh, get overly stained from that? I, I picture the woman who's getting into the bathtub and it's just filled with that. We all did. We absolutely hated it. And by the end of the shooting, everyone had it like in all our nails. We wouldn't get off our skin. You know, the the... The entire post office had like a lot of waste from that stuff, so it it was really hell. We, we everyone hated it. <laughs> everyone hated that. There were times that I wasn't very popular. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> when is the movie set? I, it is actually timeless. I mean, my reference is the time of like late eighties, but I don't set a specific time or a place. That's, that's actually done on purpose for two reasons. One, like, I don't want this, I didn't want this to be like a locally political, uh, critic. I wanted to be more international. That was one reason. The second reason is that I, I mean, it obviously talks about the mass media and I wanted to find one single tool, one single object that would define the mass media and that would be the antenna. And that wouldn't be working in like today, for example. Set up the installments of antennas was the time for 80s and 90s in Turkey. So that was the reasoning. Was it pretty repressive at the time or is it better or worse now? The thing is, like, I didn't want to talk about the politics of Turkey in 80s or 90s either. I wanted to be, I wanted to talk about politics in general, like the relationship between the authoritarian power and the media. 
Uh, and I think it exists everywhere in the world right now in different ways and different dynamics. So that's what I was tar- targeting in the in the film. It was problematic in the 80s as well. We have a coup in 1980. Before the 1980, there was a huge clash between the left and the right. And then the coup happened in 80 and it was a bloody coup. There were a lot of prisoners and so on. That effect lasted for quite some time. And in the 90s, we started to have the free markets. It was never like very uh, easy going in terms of politics. It's, 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 there's too much to talk about, so I don't want to go deep into it. But it was never e- very easy. But nowadays, it's, I would say it's possibly worse than 80s and 90s, at least the 90s, because the government right now is a bit more authoritarian. Did you worry about the film being censored at all? A bit, actually, you know, um, it's, as I said, this movie is not about the Turkish government per se, but I mean, the, the situation, the problem about authoritarian power and media is obviously Turkey is also a prime example in this regard. So even though it's not directed against the Turkish government, it could be understood that way. And I thought that could be problematic. But it's not a very, you know, it's not a mainstream film. It's not going to be something that's much out out there. So I highly doubt that I would get in trouble, but it could it could possibly happen. What was the life of the film once it was done? Initially, I ran out of money, so I had to wait like six months to for the editing. And after the editing, it was like a whole new world for me. I, I didn't know how to circulate the film. I didn't, I mean... I really didn't know what to do about it. And then luckily I found a producer, Mugeza, and then she already made a few films. So she knew how to direct me, what I should be doing, how to get into the festival circuit and so on. And from that point on, things got easier. Uh, and then we found a sales agent from France, Stray Dogs. Then we did the premiere in Toronto, then the BFI London and so on. It, it went well afterwards. How was that uh, going to Toronto for the premiere? Oh, amazing. It was an incredible experience for me, really. Uh, such a huge festival. It's super lovely to be there. It's, everything is well organized. You get to meet a lot of people. You get to meet people that, you, that, could, that can inspire you. You can have beautiful conversations. So I, I really enjoyed the experience in Toronto. Also to watch your film in, in huge stage and so on. That's, that's a... You know, childhood dream coming into reality. Are you a big fan of David Cronenberg? I love Cronenberg. I don't know if I would say like I'm a big fan of Cronenberg. Like I could analyze all of his films and so on. But I do love his style. I grew up watching his films. And I can see like direct relationship between like my film and Cronenberg's style, especially like Videodrome and so on. So yeah, I would say I'm a fan of him. But yeah, that, that would be my answer. Did the antenna get to play in Turkey? Yes, it did. It played in Antalya Film Festival. Uh, it's one of the biggest festivals in Turkey. That was maybe like five, six months ago. I don't remember the exact exact date right now, but it, it played in Antalya. And it had a mixed reception. You know, some people loved it, some people hated it. And... But yeah, and then it's going to be shown in Istanbul Film Festival in three days. That's going to be exciting to, you know, screen the film in my hometown. Well, it's nice that you can even have a festival right now. We're still under lockdown over here. Oh, yeah, that was that was the case for Turkey as well. So this festival was supposed to happen in May, actually, but it was postponed till now. And now it's just going to be 
screened one time in an open air uh, movie theater. Here, just we are all walking with masks. We are we are in our little dystopia as well. Tell me about um, stories from hidden worlds. How did that come about? As I said, I did documentaries before as well. I did one documentary in Mongolia, then I did one in Sri Lanka. I was working as a photojournalist as well. So uh, there, there was a lot of traveling and working abroad for me in for the past 10 years. And then after this, after the antenna was done, I had some time to work on a different project. And a production company from Turkey approached me and told me that they are looking for making TV, you know, documentary series. Gave them an idea that we could go to this very different geographies, find communities that are not really affected by globalism that still has their unique qualities and then tell their story through interviews. That was the idea. And then they accepted it. And after that, for last one and a half year, I've been pretty much on the road. I got back just like two months ago. Yeah, we were doing six episodes around the world. It was a great experience. I, I really love it. Do you already have your next idea for your next uh, feature film in mind? Yes, I do. I actually just finished the script. It's also a horror film. I think I'm going to be heading towards being a genre director because all my creative work is is being fed by the horror world. And yeah, the second film is a horror movie about a horse driver, you call it, uh, and a zombie girl. So a girl is murdered and okay, first I have to tell you that in Turkey we have this system that if you die in a city that you are not from, you can ask the government for your corpse to be taken to the city that you were born. So so there's this delivery system in the country and you know they are done in these uh, trucks or horses uh, with a freezing system on behind them. Yeah, you could be traveling for like 30 hours on the road uh, with, the, with the dead body. So it's based on this idea. It starts off like this. So our driver is, is a guy that does this job. But a girl is murdered and then they want him to get rid of this girl and disappear for a month because they want to cover up the murder. And turns out she's a zombie. Well, he falls, he falls in love with the girl. He starts feeding the girl with his own body. And then once he cannot feed her anymore, they start murdering people uh, so they can find victims for him, for her. So it's this kind of love, like a twisted, sexually charged road movie. I would say love story also. What is the state of cinema like now in Turkey? And are there more genre films now than there used to be? Yes, way more, actually. After the 2000s, uh, there was a new era uh, of horror films we, which are based on the theme of genies based on the uh, Quran actually so mostly this is very similar to like Amityville, Exorcist demonic possession stories it became huge after a movie called Da Bay in 2004 this movie was so it, it had like a 1 million in box office and it made a lot of, lot of money and then people realized okay this is the way to go and people like this stuff and after that, maybe there were like six, seven, maybe even more this type of movies. Exactly the same formula, small changes uh, every year. So from that point on, we produce a lot of horror films. Uh, usually not, you know, 
very cinematic or it could be considered like B-movies and so on. But honestly, I, I don't mind that. I think it's still, as long as there's the horror cinema of some sort that's still serving uh, me and other filmmakers as well. So I was happy about it. That has been going on for like 15, 16 years. And lately, it is shifting a little bit as well. Nowadays, apart from demonic possession films, there are, there are other filmmakers doing other stuff as well. There's a new director called John Renault. He did a couple of films. It's loosely based on Lovecraftian type of uh, st- stories. There was not a horror movie, but it's a fantasy movie done by Tolga Karachevik called Sarmashik. It was a group of men stranded on a ship uh, that talks about politics as well. And there's this, you know, uh, magical ivy, dark ivy spreading in the, on the ship. So there's this interesting stuff that is being produced nowadays for the past five years. This is shifting towards a more original direction, I would say. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been great talking with you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. We are back and we are talking about the antenna. And I know, um, Mark, you mentioned the um, apartment trilogy of Polanski. I was definitely thinking of, and you even mentioned Cronenberg before, I was definitely thinking of some of the apartment movies that Cronenberg made or one movie that he didn't make, which I kind of had hoped that he would, or Vincenzo Natale might have made, which was uh, High Rise, that whole idea of the wildlife uh, happening at this high-rise apartment and just the the nuttiness that ensues there. I kind of wish that things had gone a little bit more crazy like they do in high-rise. Okay, I have, not, I have not seen that yet. I'll have to put that in the queue. I was t- a tad disappointed with that. I was really looking forward to it. Uh, I, like, I like Ben Wheatley, um, or I like his first couple of movies, and then since then I've struggled, but it was an interesting idea. I don't know if I'll watch it again anytime soon. I think I probably would have preferred a Vincenzo Natale version and I didn't know that he had attempted one, but um, that social structure would have been interesting. We don't get that in this movie at all, you know, with the higher ups being better off and, and the bottom revolting. Um, They all seem pretty level in their, I don't know if we hear about the other father's joblessness or having a job, but they don't they don't seem to there doesn't seem to be a disparity there in the tenants themselves and then um you know i always uh, go back to shivers with with apartment stuff too and that's a little bit closer to this with infected tenants and again that how are they affected uh, infected or how are they affected by it when they are infected and why is there a difference between different people being infected Something else that came to mind is a movie called Sequence Break. I don't know if either of you have seen that, which is very Cronenbergian. It's basically Videodrome, but with a video game as opposed to a pirated porn station. And you get that same kind of thing with with wires going into body parts. And I think there's even the controller of the video game kind of becomes fleshy 
like we see in Videodrome. Or like Existence. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Await Further Instructions is another one that I kept thinking of. It involves, I don't think it's black goo, I think it's more of a black um, membrane that covers these houses. It takes place in England and it's kind of a anti-Brexit thing and we've got xenophobia and and um you know people out of work and and uh sort of similar scenario and the transmission is coming through the tv um and they get encapsulated by this black membrane that they can't get out of and you know it's again wires and it's i'm probably misremembering some of this but um that kept coming to mind as i watched this I mean, when I see black goo, my mind goes to two places immediately. One is the X-Files with the black oil, and then the other is the stuff that they used in Prometheus to like infect uh, the one woman's drink. The guy drops little thing in the woman's drink, and then she becomes infected with an alien. Who the fuck knows what the fuck is going on in that movie? Just those ideas. And then and I kept thinking, too, of um, there were like three movies that came out i can't say in quick succession um there was the signal in 2007 there was another movie called the signal in 2014 but the one from 2007 was this kind of emergency broadcast signal that went out and turned people into murderous crazy people and that movie is really fascinating to me because it's split into three parts and i think it's the second part which introduces a lot of comedy to it like sick horror comedy and first and third are much more scary but i really like that movie and then there was a really shitty stephen king book slash movie called the cell where it was a signal that gets blasted out through a cell phone and turns people into flocking zombies and blah 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 it's a horrible movie don't waste your time with it it was one of those like oh they made a movie out of us and john cusack's in it and samuel l jackson what the hell how did this happen that idea of the signal pushed out that turns people into crazy people people i was kind of thinking that that midnight broadcast from the antenna was just going to turn everything up to 11 with that you know speaking of signal movies it's just kind of popped in my head it was a recent one um but I do believe uh, that Nicolas Cage movie, uh, Mom and Dad, was uh, started by just a random signal that caused parents to just kill their children. I need to watch that one. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, of Nicolas Cage, of modern Nicolas Cage movies, it's maybe a rung or two below Mandy or Color Out of Space, but it's still worth your watch, worth the watch. The signal that you're talking about, or one of them, was that with uh, Lawrence Fishburne? Either one of those that you... That's the 2014, I okay. think. Okay, and then I think there's a new one, uh, like a, within the last year or two, that's also called The Signal or a Signal, and I cannot remember what any... I've seen one of them. I think it was the one with Lawrence Fishburne, but I can't be positive. But um, is there another word for signal that we can use from now on, guys, for, for our movies? about Transmission? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And well, then in 10 years, we'll have like three transmission movies in a row. <laughs> you know, you, you brought up a good thing of, uh, or a good point of, um, apartment movies. I guess I wasn't really thinking too much about that, but then all of a sudden, you know, Poltergeist 3 comes to mind. Not exactly, you know, the same story, but, um, another one I think which also takes place in an apartment or a small complex was Under the Shadow from a few years ago, which, 
you don't see a whole lot of Middle Eastern horror movies. Um, I guess, you know, this might be included in that. Um, but if I'm thinking of my geography, right? But, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that we don't see a whole lot of horror movies come from that part of the world, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah, other than Indonesia, which I guess isn't really uh, in that area, but uh, that's the only thing that comes to mind is all the Indonesian remakes and reboots and, and ripoffs of things. Well, I, I haven't seen it, but wasn't that um, A Girl Walks Alone at Night, I think, was Middle Eastern? I think that was Persian, yeah. She's Persian, but she's uh, that was filmed in and around Bakersfield, California. Well, that's very exotic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's been decades since I watched this movie, but that scene in the in, in Mehmet's office that I mentioned earlier, when he's hearing all the noises and you kind of get shots of his eyes and his ears, uh, each time I've watched it, it makes me think of the film Delicatessen. And I don't know why, if there was a scene like that that's just embedded in my brain with ticking clocks and little noises going on. I mean, that's an apart- that's an apartment complex as well. Kind of a different scenario, but yeah, there's that whole montage sequence um, when oh, what is it? There's like so many things going on. A woman is beating a rug. The landlord's having sex with a woman, and the springs are going. Um, our main character is painting uh, the ceiling, and he's got his uh, suspenders are keeping him in place. And there's at least one or oh, there's the the people that are testing the little moo cow things that they make, and it just is yeah, it's things after 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 each other and yeah just the rhythm of that editing is just brilliant and i can even see because our main character Mehmet has a very unique look to him though i do have to say i think that one of the i want to say it was like the underground dwellers in uh delicatessen kind of has a similar like uh a, a protruding mm-hmm. eye type look to him yeah that's a kind of a very french look you get that in a lot of french films so i i maybe that's what brought it to mind and this that hearing those sounds layer up on top of each other played for totally different effect in each one of those movies. But yeah, I just kept, I couldn't get it out of my head. So thank you, Mike. To me, it's very Coen brothers, just that quick editing style and just kind of, you know, how the Coens and, and Raimi were so similar in their editing style. And then when I saw that in delicatessen, I was just like, Oh, okay. I wonder if this is an homage to uh, a, uh, a Coen brothers film. See, now you got me thinking of Barton Fink, which is kind of sort of another uh, part of uh, movie yes, of a different sort. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. See, if you want a good hallway scene, <laughs> oh, go. I'll show you the life of the mind. I only noted one other movie, and this is this is a stretch, but uh, since you know the, some of the articles had mentioned Lynch and Cronenberg, when the bathtub lady is, I think right before she does her injections, she's at the mirror, and she starts scratching her head, and that that made me think of the scene in Wild at Heart when uh, the girl in the from the car wreck is digging her finger into the back of her head. Um, doesn't get as as <laughs> as gnarly in this, but I think I was kind of maybe grasping at straws with that. But she does pull a big clump out, and I don't know if that was supposed to imply that maybe she has trichotillomania. I'm not sure how to what the correct pronunciation of that word is, but uh, when people pull their own hair out, um, can be a, 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 a obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, so I don't know. That's not going anywhere. So, <laughs> like, she's not upset about it. It just happens. It was strange. Yeah, that was a. I think that you, you point to that too, and I think um, not that I'm trying to bash, but I mean, like, 
that part, I mean, there's so much going on here. Part of its body horror feels supernatural. I mean, I thought that, you know, I thought this was going to turn into a full-blown body horror movie for a moment there, you know, or something was going to happen. Um, not, not quite. <laughs> it's like the back of her head could split open. She'd be Brundlefly underneath or something. Or if, you know, her story had continued any further, uh, maybe that would have played a role. I, it seemed like an odd thing. Um, I don't know if it was just supposed to, again, imply that she was obsessed with beauty or staying young or something like that. But again, that doesn't even get really uh, played out because she's uh, has her accident in the tub very shortly after that. Yeah, and I thought somebody that was completely submerged in that black goo was going to come out as something completely different. There were a lot of uh, dangling threads that, that didn't really get tied up neatly at the end. That's a typical thing that can happen with, with first-time directors. Um, I don't know if he wrote this as well, but I would, uh, wouldn't be surprised. Those strong ideas, but you got to kind of, you got to tie them up somehow. Too many left untied, I guess. I want to thank my co-hosts on this special episode, David and Mark. So, David, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? Uh, well, um, I am a part of a, uh, a group of uh, goat guys. We call ourselves the Binge Watchers. We have our podcast, Binge Watchers Podcast. Uh, you can find us at bwpodcast.com. Uh, we're in the middle of our second annual Summer Slash, which we're just doing nothing but slasher movies all summer, although some are left to interpretation. We, we started this year off with doing all four Scream movies. We've done Tenebrae, uh, Deep Red, and a few others. The uh, highlight being Der Samurai, which I've never heard of before we did this. We cover all kinds of things, but, you know, mainly with a focus on horror. So check us out there. And Mark, what's happening in your world, sir? Well, since this uh, lockdown started, not a whole lot. I released uh, two full episodes towards the beginning of lockdown. One was an episode on The Tenant with film journalist Anya Stanley, whose writing I enjoy quite a bit. And then our episode... Uh, Mike on the Evil Dead was, I think, in April. And since then, my brain's been kind of mushy, so I haven't been able to focus any energy on a specific topic for an episode. So I've just been kind of uh, watching movies with my daughter and making her be my co-host on this little series called Notes from Home. And there are three of those up right now. I want to get on my uh, Mickey Rourke double feature if I can get my brain around it. But if not, probably the next thing I'll be doing is the Shivers episode with you in September. But that's that's a long ways off, so hopefully I'll get something in between then. But, uh, that's all at Wake Up Heavy on SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter. Everything is at Wake Up Heavy, so you can find me at any of those places or at wakeupheavy.com. So what is your ideal Mickey Rourke double feature? I had a real brief but real strong Mickey Rourke obsession in 1987 that revolves around Angel Heart and Barfly. They came out within about six months of each other, and I absolutely loved both of those movies when they came out. And I think it lasted until his next movie, Homeboy, which was probably in 88 or 89, and died after that. But it, I want to talk about Angel Heart and Barfly because those movies have had a, a major impact on me, even just outside of, of movie watching. So I've been planning that for a while and probably mentioned it on my show God knows how many times, and I just haven't had the wherewithal to sit down and do it. So you're saying he didn't bring you back with Harley Davidson and the Marvel Man? <laughs> no. 
Yeah, he, but, I, uh, but I second my love of Barfly. That's what got me into Bukowski. So I, that's I hear you. yeah, that's a that's going to be a big part of the episode. So it took me into a whole new world of literature when I was eighteen. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.